You're listening to Resurrection Life Podcast with your hosts, Father Steve Matson and Richard Budd, the podcast of the Church of the Resurrection in Lansing, Michigan. In today's episode, we talk about the season of Lent. We hear a reflection on almsgiving, and we hear a song by Christy Gulak, Walking Wounded. Welcome to Resurrection Life Podcast. Welcome again to uh, an episode of Resurrection Life Podcast. Uh, this is uh, your host, Richard Budd, and with me as always... Father Steve Matson, pastor here at uh, Church of the Resurrection, and and you were going to say there's someone else. Well, I was going to lead into that. You just get, you, just t- you took away. You no, took no, away no, no, no. You uh, go ahead. <laughs> you go ahead. You take it. Today we're going to talk about Lent, and uh, you know everybody knows about Lent. How do we spice this up? We thought we'd bring Father Alexi Absolutely. back. Absolutely. Talk about. Um, and I think we're 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 going to we're going to tease you into more disciplines. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Are we going to have to give up oil and wine? And well, let's just let's just. I I can't wait to hear how seriously the Eastern Catholics take it. I I I lament. In fact, I think after this conversation, I'm going to be more emboldened in taking on voluntarily, not out of uh, uh, coercion or law, more disciplines this Lent because I I know that there's benefits. So anyway, so. This episode comes out on uh, the day before Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday, now, um, but you you but, will have already be been in Lent at that time. You've already yes. started Lent. Yes, yeah. yes. So so sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> As Mardi Gras is going on, the, our poor Eastern brothers and sisters are are sitting in their fast already. So. Yeah, it always creates an interesting dynamic. <laughs> so it's the first time. So interestingly enough for us, so kinds of as you alluded to, our Lent starts a little earlier. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, the counting is a little different. So we have the 40 days of Lent, but we don't count Holy Week as part of Lent. Holy Week is its own thing. Yeah, we don't count the Triduum. Sorry, mm, right. Holy Thursday. Yeah. And uh, so we start the Sunday evening at Vespers uh, before Ash Wednesday. And uh, in strict observance, it's actually the longest fast uh, from then until... Wednesday Vespers, when we have our what's called the pre-sanctified liturgy, which I can talk about more in a little bit. But basically, uh, in the monastery, so that that Sunday to that Wednesday is that that's, that fast. That that's so the fastest throughout all of Great Lent, okay. but the strictest, the longest part of the year, where in the monasteries, you know, they'll especially do this. You don't eat anything until Wednesday evening. So, so it's for kind of like a good three days. You kickstart it, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you'll find some uh, some parishioners, but it's it's kind of this thing of whenever you get into a um, you're setting like a new normal. You gotta really start it off right, Again, yeah. and then you you ease up. Because you know we've all experienced this, where you know with fast you experience challenges of fortitude, right? Mm-hmm. So knowing what you need to do and having the virtue to meet it in practice. So I guess in the wisdom of you know the church fathers, it's well let's make it the best in the beginning, uh, so that you know as you're in the fast and you're uh, having challenges with it you have something good that you can look back on and say, well, I did really well then. That will inspire you to future fasting. So, Right. No, I mean, ideally, I will not be joining you in that. Free, <laughs> you, got, you got fat free free Andrew, I got fat Tuesday. That's exactly right. Uh, and, yeah. But I do think that... Punchkeys to you. So we do have two fat Tuesdays. 
You have two? Yes. So okay, yeah. Speak come to on. me. Yeah. Speak to me. I might, I might be leaving the parents. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> so we we scale up the fasting too, right? So uh, yeah, the the fast during Lent is no meat, dairy, fish with backbone, or wine, or olive oil. Um, and the olive oil is a little because, like in the in um, like the Middle East or in like Mediterranean countries, like. Olive oil is basically like butter. It's mm-hmm. a garnish, mm-hmm. really. So it, we use it for cooking. Like you go, you get some good hummus. Oh yeah, that looks good. But wait till you put the olive oil yeah. on it. I mean, it really it gives it some flavor. So basically, it's just kind of making the food, food a little more bland. Um, so on uh, that Sunday that I mentioned, we have our forgiveness vespers, where uh, you know the whole community starts Lent together. We uh, will mutually ask each other for forgiveness. We do prostrations to each other, asking for forgiveness, bowing to the ground. Um, and then most people will kind of go to confession to start off Lent. But that Sunday morning is what's called Cheese Fair. So that's, the, that's one Fat Tuesday-ish uh, equivalent. And So this is a Vespers Saturday before that Sunday? Uh, so this, no, this is the Cheese mo- Fair. Like the feast is usually after Divine Liturgy on okay. Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. So And you eat cheese. Whatever dairy you have... Just bring it to church, and everyone just kind of eats it. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it to clear out your yes, supply of cheese? Yes, clear it out, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So the, the Russians will... I love cheese. cheese. <laughs> I love, love, love cheese. Oh, yeah. So the, the, the Russians will typically, they'll make a lot of pancakes, like little blini. And, you know, if you have blini, you can't really have it without caviar. So you got to, you know, it's a good experience. And then uh, the Sunday before that is meat fair. So you, what meat do you have in your fridge? Just bring it by, and we're all going to eat it. Uh, so you have, you know, okay. this. Are Latins welcome? Oh, yeah. No, it's, you're more than welcome. Uh, yeah, so you, you, you have the Meat Fair Sunday and then the Sunday. I'll have to after. get coverage for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, so some of your fasts include more foods. Like, you know, um, in, the, in the West, we've had various, um, at times, various different um, practices for our fast. Um, now, I mean, Depending on who you talk to, I think most people think it's a little bit easy. Uh, we, no, no, no. I mean, most people who think about it think it's embarrassingly easy. Yeah, okay. Right? <laughs> I thought you were going to disagree with me at first. No, I mean, it's... it's <laughs> so we, it, we only have to fast soft. two I mean, days. Right. Um, we're encouraged to fast, pray, and give alms. Well, and even, but, even the fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday is it's not really one meal... Two snacks. Two, two meals that don't add up, two snacks that don't add up to another meal, right? And, and what happens? I mean, every, every Friday when we're, we're abstaining from meat, and it's just meat, uh, people are going to fish fry. We don't have a fish fry, so I can, I can, uh, can scapegoat. <laughs> I can scapegoat fish fry. Like, I'm just going to stuff my face. And there are fish fries that have shrimp and smelt. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's... Uh, it's decadent, right? The, the shrimp doesn't the, have a backbone, though, so I, yeah, so apparently that's good. Yeah. good. I was thinking stuff. lobster also doesn't have a backbone. Well, <laughs> all right. So, but I, my point is that I think the the desire out of mercy in the West to make it less onerous has actually compromised the integrity of the faith, and I think the holy days of obligation, moving those to Sundays, has been a problem. I, I'm. But I can choose to take on more disciplines freely. If it were if it were coerced for me, 
it would be easier for me because I've said in my homilies that I do not have as much self-control as I wish I had. So the, the law or the rules, the, the disciplines would help me just here. Sunday is easier to go to mass than during the week just because I don't have an obligation during, during the week to go to mass. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the obligation yeah, actually, yeah, it, it helps right. us. But uh, in one sense, obligation is mercy. But this isn't to like compare like, oh, who's got it harder? It, you know, yeah. it, it, we can sometimes slip into that. But, yeah. I, but I, I, I do think that there is a more coherent logic to both the Eastern and people will be used to me saying it, the pre-Vatican II church that had four times a year ember days of fasting. I'm mm-hmm. going to be preaching about the ember days. I think we need to restore these habits. I've got on my shelf here, Eat Fast Feast by Jay Richards that talks about uh, the fasting tradition in the East and the West and the benefits at the physiological level and at the spiritual level of this discipline of fasting, which we've lost. And those of you in the East, Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, and frankly, every other world religion, right? We Western Catholics have become impoverished just here, and I think we've, uh, we've, we're poorer for it. I mean, I guess we're impoverished, so we're poorer, but we, we've, we've lost uh, some of uh, the benefits of fasting, both at the level of the heart and the level of the body. So, and so, all of that, that's my little homily. Yeah. So, I don't want to just focus on fasting because there's yes. more to Lent than fasting. But I have one question before we move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Father Steve mentioned the um, the older practice of the Ember Days. Do you have other times of fasting throughout your calendar? Yes. So, you'll hear for us, it's called Great Lent mm-hmm. because there's other Lent? Lents okay. throughout the year. So, that, you know, for us, like Lent is any fasting period. So, like the two weeks before the Feast of the Door Mission is a fasting uh, period. So Great Lent is the strictest in mm-hmm. terms of what you can and can't eat. Um, and then you have uh, what's called the Apostles' Fast uh, or St. Philip's Fast uh, right around after Pentecost. Um, and that depends on uh, how long the that's the, the length will vary. And then the 40 days before Christmas, before the Feast of the Nativity, is a fast too. Okay. Um, so the in some ways, the... Uh, the um, rather I messed up the St. Phil's fast is the feast before nativity. Okay. So I, I thought yeah. so, but I yes. didn't want to contradict no, no. the priest. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. Uh, so the, yes, yeah, so the uh, St. Phil's fast is the one before the nativity, but in so, a lot of ways that's harder because you get all the invites to the Christmas parties. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. And it's, you know, you're having, I'll, the I'll leave that one or, out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, there's, there's several different fasting periods throughout the year. And I think like as people listen and they're like, wow, like that's so much fasting for Great Lent. Like anyone who's like, great, I'm just going to go and do like all the fasting I outlined for Great Lent, like that'd probably be a mistake for most people mm-hmm. because it, it just misunderstands the spiritual life as simply a matter of the will. Yeah. Um, where like you, like, you know, if you talk to anyone who's done like some serious fasting, they'll tell you about sometime they went overboard with fasting and like it kind of sometimes takes years to get back in a good mm-hmm. you know, prayer life and everything. So, like, if anyone's listening, is like, I'm going to do the full fast this year. Don't do it yet. Like, uh, yeah. you know, talk to your spiritual director. Talk to your confessor. There's it, a, a maturation that needs to happen. Yeah, and it's kind of like um, like going to the gym. Mm-hmm. If you see someone, you look at them, and you're like, man, they're benching. It shows how much I go to the gym. How much is, like, a lot to bench? Like 300 pounds. 300 pounds. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't bench I, I, 300. <laughs> no. Yeah. That's true. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> but so if you're benching 300 yeah. pounds, if you yeah. try that, like, you're going to get crushed. 
Um, and you just have to slowly right. grow at a pace that, you know, that the spiritual life and God's grace allows you to. So how, how strict is the fast? Like, would you have to go to confession if you didn't follow the fast? Or and In the Latin, if you don't fast and, and abstain during Lent, you'd need to go to and confess that. Yeah. Um, you know, for us, you know, the... So the fast, it's kind of considered you outline the maximum. And then you work with your confessor uh, okay. to figure out what what are you going to do for your prayer rule, for your fasting rule. So it's not uncommon. Like I had one, uh, my con- uh, my confessor told me one time, he says, you know, you're too too proud. I want you to, uh, during the fast, I want you to like, when you go to church, eat meat and have people ask you about it and tell them that, you know, because you're too proud. That's why you have to eat meat because you, <laughs> you were told that you're not good enough. You're not good enough to do the fast. Yeah. So like the, you can, so it's not uncommon to hear like, the fast is the maximum. It's not this law that's given out to everyone. Um, but then you also, uh, it's, for your, it's for your spiritual benefit. So there's kind of this freedom in working towards it. And uh, so you have to go to confession, uh, you know, in as much as a sin is missing the mark, right? Because mm-hmm. the sin isn't, you know, here's a list of things you've done wrong, but it's missing the mark in living up to what your baptism and chrismation are supposed to manifest as. Um, you know, someone, and St. John um, of Cronstadt was once asked, like, when am I supposed to go, to, when am I supposed to go to confession? And he says, whatever you're most ashamed of, confess that. So, yeah, it's obviously with a good conscience. So, like, during confession, during Great Lent, you're going to confession, you know, you know, a little more frequently. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, should they go to confession? Yes, but it's not so much because you miss the fastest. You should be going to confession regularly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, we don't... We're um, much more legalistic. In yes, way. yeah. And so that was kind of the... But I'm always hesitant to tell people, well, like... Well, yeah. we're, we're more legalistic uh, in our uh, our application of, of, of what the church's moral theology is, but that doesn't mean that the average Catholic, uh, and I, I, I'm not going to presume that the average Eastern Catholic uh, is, is more... Uh, responsive and responsible than the average Latin. I'm not saying that at all, but I do think that uh, many, many of our Catholic brothers and sisters, it's not so much the case here at Resurrection, but don't go to confession at all. No, or I know. Once or and, twice a year. Mainly what I meant by that statement yeah. was the way the Western church has developed is more it's of a... It's legalistic. It, well, it's a more of a concern for following the, yeah, the, the yeah, letter of yeah, the law. Yeah. And the Eastern church, like as you mentioned with your confessor, He's applying the law to you particularly um, as a father would. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, uh, there's it, goodness it, it, in both it, of those. It is a good point. And I, I tell people, you know, if they, they come to me and they want to remake their whole lives, I say the same things. That's what the evil one wants you to do is try to take on too much so that mm-hmm. you actually give up. <laughs> you exactly. give up. And some people will say, you know, I, I, I had taken on a personal discipline for this, for the, uh, holy season of Lent, uh, and they confess that. For me, that's not a sin, actually. That's a loss of grace, mm-hmm. right? It's just, yeah. But I, I just encourage them to begin again, yeah. and as, as we all want, need, need to do. Yeah, and I, I think the, there in the um, Flies of the Desert Fathers, there's this one story where someone asks the monk, like, what is that you do? And he says, we fall and we get up again. So, you know, what I always you know, recommend to my parishioners is whenever you do fall and you feel like you have to get up again spiritually, that's when a good time to go to confession is. Mm. So like yeah. for the fast also, like kind of if you're 
as a spiritual director, you kind of want it to be for someone that is right in that sweet spot, right? Where odds are they're actually going to not be able to do it perfectly during Lent because uh, it's not that you want them to fail, but you want them to see how it's only possible with God and they need God's grace. And it's God who's blessing them with the fast. Uh, And you don't want any delusion of its of grandeur either. So it's, uh, so that kind of gets out of the kind of, kind of the equation of like, okay, well, if you mess up on the fast, you have to go to confession. You know, it's just, we're very comfortable with failure (laughs) and it's just, you outline the maximum and you just strive to do your, your, your best for it. But, you know, I feel like, you know, when I talk to my Roman Catholic friend, Catholic friends, that's like loaded language where it's like, you do your best, you're going to fail. It's okay. Where like, if you take away the loaded language and the context of it, uh, that's kind of how it's approached in the East. So there's no like double meaning there when yeah. it's like you're going to fail. It doesn't mean it's okay, um, and doesn't mean they don't strive for it. Um, you know, and also like one other thing on this whole fast is the uh, there's just the benefits of fasting as a community mm-hmm. um, because when you're fasting by yourself, there's all there's it can very quickly turn into vanity. Um, where you look at other people and you think in your mind, oh, I'm fasting more than them. I'm doing better than they are. Um, and then there's this weird um, phenomenon where even your prayer isn't actually prayer. You're praying to God, but it's feeding your ego, which isn't what prayer does. It's, it's kind of an undermining of prayer. Um, so when you're with community, it's kind of nice. You, you know, you'll be tempted by these thoughts of, oh, look how great I'm fasting. And then you look at this kid who's like five years old, who's doing, who has done exactly what you've done, and they're not even thinking about it. They're not like, oh man, I really want that steak. It's just like, mom and dad gave me this food. This is what we're eating. They don't even know they're fasting. Yeah, yeah. And they, it's just not a distraction for them. Well, it's, I mean, it's a really good point. And I, I, this makes me um, more convinced that I want to encourage uh, our local parish to choose to follow the Ember Day fast. You know, it's mm-hmm. Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, uh, four times a year. And uh, it was interesting, the, um, the fast and feast dynamic, that's what you've been talking about, and this book that I referenced. And I'd encourage people to get the book, um, Jay Richards' Eat Fast Feast, which is not just about losing weight, it's about the discipline, spiritual disciplines, and he talks about the church fathers, the church's teaching, talks about Ember Days in there, and it's it really works people up to... Um, I, are you familiar with that book, Grits I'm not, no. It, it's great. I know you've done fasting, yeah. and you've, you've seen the benefit of it, but it's, uh, it's a great spiritual uh, meditation for especially those of us who are not coerced or required or encouraged at a high level by the, the community to, to fast. Yeah, and it's... Uh... You also kind of everyone focuses on the fast and it's oh, okay. How do I, you know, sackcloth and ashes? Let's how how to be miserable. But it's really the uh, contrast of to feasts that gives the feasts meaning. So, um, you know, for us, you know, Pascha, Roman Catholics will call it Easter. That's a huge, huge, huge feast day for us, right? So yeah, we don't celebrate big enough. I don't think. Oh, I mean, like, so we have like the twelve great feasts on in the year. Pascha isn't one of the twelve great feasts. It's like not in the same category. It's mega, mega huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you go to a, you know, after you get the liturgy on Pascha, uh, parishes will typically have the, the blessing of the food for the meal, but also there's um, kind of a feast that the parish will do. I mean, it's like you can feel the resurrection in, in the room because it's, it, it's, it's a real feast. You know, people haven't yeah, been eating, right, right, right. Uh, you know, f- 
eating much quantity or quality for, you know, 40, you know, I guess at that point it's like 50 days. Um, and it just, it, it just, it really got, you know, there's also a community building thing where you were on a journey with people together and there's a shared experience, um, you know, more than just the liturgy itself. It just, it's, you know, it ties together everything. So in our uh, canon law, there are two days during Lent that we can um, take a break from the the celebration, uh, the, the, the observance of Lent. Um, and those are the Feast of St. Joseph and um, the Incarnation. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have Annunciation. The, the Annunciation, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a, you yeah. call it the Incarnation. We call it the Annunciation. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. It's the same thing. We're trying. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, anyways. <laughs> uh, and generally, if that falls on a Friday, the the Friday penance does not apply. Do you have anything like that, or is it just yeah? So straight through? weekends, it's loosened up. You can have wine and oil, mm-hmm. um, and feast the Annunciation. Uh, you can uh, have fish. Okay. So it's. Uh, yeah, so it it's there's loosened up on certain days. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and there's it's a really interesting feast where um, it's a little before. Uh, it's actually the the Sunday when we're uh, after we're recording. It's the uh, we have a gospel reading of the publican and the Pharisee, and during that week you're prohibited from fasting because throughout the year you fast every Wednesday and Friday, so you're obliged to not fast. Uh, so uh, that's kind of. I guess our, our dynamic yeah, yeah, that's yeah, cool. similar. Yeah, so okay, let's move away a little bit from fasting. Um, yeah, I, I, our liturgies are something worth talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's why I wanted yeah, to get into. Oh so. yeah. So um, you know, for us, it, it's interesting. In typical parish usage, uh, you know, you it's, it's uncommon to have divine liturgy during the week um, unless you're a monastery, um, and that's I think just because of the preparation required to receive the Eucharist, right? So. Oftentimes you'll go to confession uh, before you receive. You go to vespers the night before. You have to pray. You know, depending on the you know the Russians, we will have this tradition. You have to pray the canon. So there, over time, the a typical parish, unless it's like a city um, where you have several priests and everything, um, wouldn't have divine liturgy on weekdays because like we don't have like a half hour hour version. Like yeah. you're you're doing it. You're going. You know, all you're 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 doing the full thing. So. Um, during Lent, you know, there's just a lot more services in a parish. So, uh, you know, our parish is, um, I'm not sure how we compare it to other parishes in our diocese, but we, we, we try to increase what we're doing during Lent because you don't, you know, uh, it's what's called the, the demon's fast where, you know, they know scripture, they don't eat, but they also don't pray. So you, you got to make sure you're praying more yeah. to not fall into what they call the demons mm-hmm. fast. I don't want to do a demons fast, but I'm pretty sure I've done most of that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm guessing you prayed a little bit. I mean, a yeah, little bit. Just this side of the demons fast. Right? So, uh, you know, for us, like throughout the year, you know, every weekend, Saturday night, we'll have Vespers, Sunday morning, we'll have our matins, what we call Orthros, and then our divine liturgy. Um, but during Lent, uh, we'll add some other services in the weekdays. So, you know, Monday night we'll do Compline, um, which is, you know, it, it's Lenten, all the Lenten services, the texts are different. They kind of have this penitential uh, theme going throughout them. But Compline especially, um, it's, because Compline is, you know, right before you go to sleep. Um, so you focus on death, repentance, and it's kind of the low point before you get the resurrection, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, 
from our from our sin we experience death and it's just kind of folk trying to drive that penance wednesday uh we'll have our pre-sanctified liturgy so uh the roman Catholics will have a pre-sanctified liturgy during great week um, yeah on good friday on good friday when you say pre-sanctified uh the 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 eucharist has already been um oh okay yes. oh, okay yeah yeah that's right yeah. uh so for us yes, you know, so i've never i've never heard it characterized as such but yes. yeah that makes sense okay. um so the priest will, uh, you know, for us, we don't uh, store the Eucharist past the liturgy, except for during Lent. So okay. whatever you consecrate, you'll consume during that liturgy. Uh, but during Lent, you'll store, you'll uh, consecrate an additional um, piece of bread, uh, and you'll save it for Wednesday. And there is a, uh, a communion service with a lot of psalms, it's penitential, um, and it's it's. It's, I think it's my favorite liturgy that we do. Um, other than, so what's the reason that it's pre-sanctified? Because you don't do divine liturgy during weekdays during Lent okay. in our tradition. Right. So that, that's, that's not just, it's prohibited. Uh, or is it? Or except for like certain feast days. So Feast of the okay. Annunciation, okay. you'll do right, a divine right, liturgy. Right. Um, so you're saying the custom is not to have liturgies during the week, but during Lent, you don't. Correct. It's this precinct. About yeah, it. and, and right. typical parish usage. Okay. Monastic usage, they'll have divine liturgies during the week, uh, but still not during Lent. Okay. Um, so it, it's just, it's interesting because the, uh, you know, you'll have the gifts and we do these entrances. So there's these processions that you go around the church with the gospel and then with the holy gifts during a regular, you know, weekday Sunday of liturgy. But uh, for pre-sanctified, you come out and they're already consecrated. So you know, as the priest, you come out, and if you're in the congregation, everyone drops to the ground. They do a prostration, yeah. um, and it's it's uh, the priest as he's processing. He has a veil over his head, uh, and it's kind of hearkening to Moses, Moses, where you have the glory of God. Sure, and you don't sure. look, which uh, um, so you're you're processing, and you know the, you, it's God's glory going moving throughout the church, and you know the people processing. Um, so it's really interesting. Like as you read like some of the stories in the Old Testament, it's like, oh, I like the the responses are the same of the people when they experience God. So it's just very very mm-hmm. tangible. Um, and then uh, Friday nights we have uh, is it's called an akathist to the Mother of God. So there is a canon. Their prayers. They're, you know, akathist means standing prayer. So their prayers that we pray to the Mother of God, um, you know, to help us during the fast to. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting in the in the east. There's uh, we have lots of services specifically dedicated to the Mother of God. Um, she's you know the chief saint, and uh, so uh, she's like the Easter of saints. You might have a, a bunch. Yes. You were saying there's a bunch yes, of different exactly. feasts, but then there's on a different level. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So so uh, yeah. So we have services, and uh, it, that's probably one of our more popular services. Um, you know, especially in the Middle East, there's this extreme devotion to the Mother of God. Um, and she's the family patron for a lot of our families. Uh, and then um, and then we all obviously have the other weekday liturgies. But we also have other things built in, like we have the can of repentance of St. Andrew of Crete, uh, which is very nice. Um, and we also have the reading of the life of St. Mary of Egypt, which is another typical service you'll find in our parishes. So what, what, uh, what time are your liturgies? They're 5.30. Uh, so right now, if it's an evening liturgy, so Vespers, Compline, Pre-Sanctified, Akathist, it's 5.30 in the evening. Um, Sunday mornings for Matins and Divine Liturgy. Matins starts at 10, Divine Liturgy starts at 11. And it kind of, you know, 
what we talked about last time, you know, the services aren't done that frequently throughout the year. Um, so like, you know, if anyone's worried about coming and say, oh, I don't know if I'm going to fit in. Our parishioners for some of these services, they'll see them once a year or, you know, you know, four or five times throughout the year. I mean, they're, they're kind of, they, they know what to do, but you're not going to stick out because they're done so infrequently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the priest is, you know, facing east, so I, I don't know what the people are doing. So I'm not going to spot someone saying say you're doing anything wrong. So, um, but also the nice thing is we, we always try as a community to have a meal after. Um, you know, uh, as you mentioned previously, I'm married with kids. So, like, I know how hard it is and just how daunting it's like, all right, we can go to church tonight. Then we got to go home. Then we got to cook and clean. So, like, mm-hmm. we try to have a meal and... Uh, you know, we'll usually, uh, you know, the, for our kids, like, we assume they're going to fall asleep on the way home. And mm-hmm. it's just, all right, we we pray as a family. We get them, uh, we drive home, they're already asleep, and then we put them in bed and everything's easy. But, you know, and also kind of, you know, one of the things during Lent is, you know, we have a lot of my old parish. You know, it was, a, it was a larger parish. We had, you know, even more services than I just outlined during the week in Lent. Some of the kids would start complaining after lunch was over, we like, why can't I see my friends? You know, I, why aren't we going to church anymore? Mm-hmm. The kids like really get into it. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, you know, they, they pick up the songs and they, the kids take Lent so seriously, but it's kind of nice because they don't, they don't view it as we do where it's like this burdensome thing. Like for them, it's like, they love it and it's the highlight of their week. So, uh, you know, we try to play into that a little just cause it's, I think they have probably a little more authentic and less jaded view of our faith. That is like, I'm coming to talk to God. I'm coming to talk to Jesus. And then I get to see my friends who all love Jesus. And then we share a meal together. It's just, I always appreciate the innocence. And it, it's kind of interesting. They, they can um, kind of exceed us in their spiritual perspective, yeah. even though they're... There's a natural religious sense yeah. of the child. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the kids will know the songs and yeah. what is distinctive about uh, Eastern liturgies, both Catholic and Orthodox, is that it is chant. There, there's no accompaniment, at least as far as I am aware. Yep. And uh, there's a uh, most everything is chanted. Mm-hmm. Maybe talk a little bit about that, and and if there's a if you under if you know of the theological reasons for that. Obviously, we chant higher liturgies, but I think if we were consistent with uh, what the angels are doing is they're singing, right? Exactly. So I, I think the whole notion there is, you know, we're not, um, when we're talking with God, we put our finest before him. That also includes our language. So the language we use, we're, we're measured in it. Um, but also the, it's kind of this prayer is a sacrifice and you always just offer your best. So, uh, for that reason, that's why we, we always chant everything. So we don't have instruments. Um, you know, different church fathers have given different reasons because, you know, St. John Chrysostom said that the reason we don't use instruments is because we now have Christ. Uh, so uh, I just know what he said. It, you know, there's different reflections on why he said that. Um, but we, you know, in, it's, at least with the, the Melkites, you know, our tradition is to, to not have instruments. Uh, and that's Byzantine at large. Uh, so the the Russians, the Greeks, the the Melkites, the Antiochians. Yeah. So um, do you have like a parish website or anything like that? We will very soon. Okay. So because uh, I'm thinking people will are will be interested uh, and, and may want to uh, 
to, yes. to come join you. And so, so this is going to be my call to action. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and, and so, so let's do this. Let's have you have this call to action, but also we can, send to me so I can put in our bulletin. Uh, the times of the special liturgies for yeah, for Lent. Okay, I can do that. And of course, everyone at the parish is welcome. And like we, uh, you know, me- like I've mentioned previously, because we're in full communion with you, they're allowed to come receive the Eucharist. We're a Catholic Church in communion, um, and Father Steve is nodding, so you have permission. That's, to that's true. That's true. So, and and I guess I'll I'll say this that uh, so they will receive both the the body and the blood, mm-hmm. and so maybe tell them how it is they ought to come up and how they will receive when they do. Yeah, so during, uh, for pre-sanctified, uh, we have this, uh, the Eucharist that's consecrated and the priest cuts it up into, uh, it's a big cube and they cut it into little tiny cubes and then we put it in the chalice. Uh, and you, the priest has a spoon and you go up to communion, you cross your arms. Uh, so like the Roman Catholics, when you go up, and you just want a blessing, you cross your arms. For us, if you want to receive the Eucharist, you cross your arms. Uh, and then you just open your mouth and tilt your head back. So the trick is do not bite the spoon. Because uh, you know people are always, oh, is that you know, sanitary? Well, if it's done correctly, it is. Because you open your mouth, the priest just puts a spoon, he turns it over, everything goes in your mouth and you consume. And you're not, you're not biting it, you're, and it's, there's no contact or anything. Um, so, but that's, you know... We're doing our best on that front. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. All right. Well, uh, happy Lent uh, to everyone. Blessed. I'll just say blessed Lent. <laughs> <laughs> For us, happy Fat Tuesday. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and uh, we'll uh, we'll speak with you next time. Absolutely. Right. Have a uh, indeed blessed Lent. And do you have a blessing for us? Uh, from the spot. Sure. Yeah. No. O Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come dwell in us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Amen. 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 Almsgiving is one of the foundational pillars of the Christian life. In the following reflection from Sean O'Neill, we explore the spiritual meaning of giving to the poor, and how it complements prayer and fasting as a way in which we can grow closer in our relationship with the Lord. Almsgiving. In the later Hebrew scriptures, the word for alms also means justice and implies that almsgiving is a way of restoring God's order to society by balancing the distribution of wealth. Jesus instructs us to give alms several times in the Gospels when he says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke twelve thirty two to 34 This goes along with Jesus' warning that it's extremely difficult for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's true that if we never feel the bite of poverty or even the discomfort of financial difficulty, we have much less opportunity to trust that the Lord will look after our material needs. 
It has also been a tradition of the church for centuries that those who are rich, or at least have more than they need, should give away their excess resources to help those in need. But even for those of us who do not have a superabundance of wealth, we may instead have time on our hands or talents that we possess that we could utilise to help the poor. Alms, whether it is in the form of money or our skill or our time, is to be given without fanfare, Jesus says in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The early church made sure that the needy were taken care of by distributing food in Jerusalem, where they were based. And it became the hallmark of the early Christian communities that they organised the distribution of money and food to the poor. Why is that? Because Jesus in all four Gospels insists on care for the poor as a way of honouring God. He even says that when we show kindness to the least of these in our midst, we are showing kindness to him. And this idea of distributing wealth has always been part of the history of the church. In the 4th century, St Basil of Caesarea maintained that the excessive wealth of the rich belonged to the poor, and for them not to give to the poor was the equivalent of theft. And at the same time, St Ambrose was also insisting that wealth or property beyond one's needs belonged by right to the poor. What is the difference between almsgiving and tithing? Tithing, traditionally and according to St Thomas Aquinas, is a tenth part of income or goods given for the upkeep of the ministers of the church and of the church itself. This follows what Jesus says about those involved in ministry when he says in Luke chapter 10, the labourer is worthy of his hire. It's true that many times some tithe money was set aside by the church to provide for the poor, but most of the references to almsgiving itself suggest a more personal touch. There is a sense with almsgiving that we should in some way involve ourselves in the lives of the poor in a more direct way, rather than rely on the official bodies to distribute our donations for us. When Jesus enjoins that we sell what we have and give to the poor, he also tells us that God will look after us. There are many anecdotes we could mention about tithing from our salary and the Lord providing an increase in revenue from out of the blue. This is not exactly as though he rewards us for giving away our money, but more a sign of his mercy and his love. The Lord has a special care for the poor, and he is pleased when we offer what we have to help them. Similarly, when we give, we are not supposed to simply give out of our abundance. The incident in Mark's Gospel of the widow's might is somewhat sobering. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, 
and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. There is a certain sense in which, when we give alms, we should feel the pinch. In other words, when we give to the poor, we should give so that we deny ourselves something that we would rather have. One of our most precious commodities is our time. When we give of our time, in a sense, that may be a more valuable gift to those in need than giving money. And although the needy are certainly those who lack material possessions, they are also those who are suffering emotionally, psychologically or spiritually. Simply spending time with someone who is in distress is also a form of almsgiving. When Jesus is berating the Pharisees for being meticulous about observance of the law while they were full of corruption in their hearts, he tells them to give to the poor as a way of cleansing their conscience. Luke 11.41 says, Be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Almsgiving then becomes a reparation for sin and a means of purification. Almsgiving is also a pillar of spirituality along with fasting and prayer. And so almsgiving becomes a way in which we can progress along the path to holiness. If you look at the lives of the saints, you find that they didn't just pray and fast, but had a special care for the needy and gave of their own resources to those who were in want. Almsgiving as a way of showing compassion for those who are struggling financially or are destitute. In the last analysis, almsgiving, taking an interest in the poor, spending a little bit of our time and energy serving the poor and providing for them materially, is a very good way of loving our neighbour. Psalm 41 is an exhortation not just to give money to the poor and needy, but also to take an interest in those who are weak. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. On a practical note, one way of making our almsgiving more effective is not just to supply the temporal needs of the poor, but also to provide a way for them to provide for themselves. This is the old adage, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. There are many causes that we can give to which are aimed at equipping underprivileged people to earn their own living. These also have the advantage that they give the needy person more dignity, such that they don't remain in the position of a beggar, but have the status of being able to supply the needs of themselves and their family. Ultimately, almsgiving, 
according to the New Testament and the tradition of the Church, is indispensable. It is an obligation that the Lord places on us, but more than that, it's a way of allowing ourselves to be conduits of the Lord's love to other people and a help to us on the road to sanctity. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you for the grace of being able to supply the needs of those less fortunate than ourselves. You have given everything to us and provided for us in every way. Help us to have compassion on the poor, the weak and the needy, since in our kindness to them we are ministering to you. Amen. We finish this episode with a song by Christy Gulak, Walking Wounded.
We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Resurrection Life Podcast. Please tune in next time for more conversation, reflections, and Catholic culture. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to drop us a line to give us feedback or suggest future topics to feature, write us at podcast at corelancing.org. You can find the Church of the Resurrection online at corelancing.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.